In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messages to them and said to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you this same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Menahem. He made him king over Gilead, Asherah, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on the one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit, so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. 
And every man stopped when he came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amar, near Gia, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of the hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. Thanks, Sue. Well, please keep that passage open in front of you. Let's uh, pray as we come to this part of God's word. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word and we ask that you give us insight and understanding that you'd shape us according to it. And we ask that we would live in response to, to you and to your King, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Politics. I just can't stand the politics of the place. There's just so much politics going on. Politics. It's often quite a negative word, isn't it? Politics. You know, we, uh, we think, gee, that's, that's a really nasty Horrible thing. One uh, dictionary defines politics in this way. The use of underhanded and unscrupulous methods in obtaining power or advancement within an organisation. It's a fairly negative spin on, uh, on politics, isn't it? And I guess you could say we see examples of this type of uh, politics on a wide scale in, you know, in governments um, or perhaps in a, a workplace or an organisation. You can see this kind of politics going on. Um, even in schools or community groups, people manoeuvring things to, to uh, get their own way, to put, their own, put themselves and their cause forward and advance their own interest. Politics. Now, surely, um, surely in its purest form, politics is not all bad. Surely it's not an entirely negative thing. I mean, if you think about what is politics, if politics is a, a way of describing the process of, of forming and enacting policies and actions in some sort of organisation or society, if it's just a way of kind of getting things done in a good way, then, well, politics itself is hardly a bad thing. We need good order. We need order in society. We need uh, things to run well and things to be done properly. In, in fact, the Bible tells us that God appoints people to positions of authority for the good of society. So the problem with politics is not politics as such. The problem is the people involved in the politics, in doing the politics. 
Power in the hands of sinful people like us is never completely wise and good. And so political machinations can abound, whether on a societal scale or even just in our own little personal corner of the world, at work or at school or in family, and things easily descend into grubby power struggles for personal significance or for vindication. People want to get their own way. We want to get our own way. So the problem is not politics per se, but people. Because the Bible tells us that sinners like us are actually never good enough, never wise enough, never strong enough to build a just and peaceful and prosperous society. Now, our only hope, according to the Bible, is the kingdom of God. The promised reality that God will send a king who will rule perfectly who will rule over his people with righteousness, with faithfulness, and will bring about perfect peace and blessing. The Bible teaches us that this king has already come and has already begun to reign. This king, Jesus, is calling people everywhere to come into his kingdom, to turn their lives around, to repent and to believe in him and put their trust in him. Human politics, our our own efforts to manipulate things for our cause, for our advancement, it won't ultimately succeed. It won't bring the kingdom of God. Only God's king can do that. Now, this is a lesson that we see played out in uh, in these early chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, The kingdom of God has, has come. God has appointed his king, David, And uh, that was beginning. And yet various men, through their own efforts, through their own uh, schemes, they attempted to influence it, to hasten it or to oppose it, to to turn it to their own advantage. And we see that in these, these chapters before us this week and in the coming weeks. And as we see that, I think there's a lesson here for us. There's a challenge, there's an encouragement for us in in our own political efforts as we live now in response to God's coming King. Now, the central figure in these chapters, in in fact, in 2 Samuel, is David, unless we're going to say it's God, that's probably the the real central figure, but humanly speaking, the central figure is David. And we might be thinking, and I don't know if you're thinking this as we come to this series in 2 Samuel, why are we learning all this stuff about David? Why do we need all this stuff about David? Well, David is in fact a central figure, not just in 2 Samuel, but in the message of the Bible. He is central to the storyline of the Bible. In fact, he is so significant that the opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, grounds Jesus' identity in the fact that he is the son of David. On the screen, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is descended from David, but this is more than just his human ancestry. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of David. David was a, was a model, was a type, was a, a shadow of the king that Jesus would fulfill and did fulfill perfectly. And so as we get to know David through this book of 2 Samuel, it actually helps to shape our understanding of Jesus and it shapes, to, uh, shapes our response to Jesus. So let's uh, dive into to 2 Samuel chapter 2. You can follow along on the, uh, the uh, handout, the outline. And uh, you, we see firstly how the new king David began his reign. Now, just to recap, um, 
Saul, King Saul had, had died. He was defeated in battle um, by the, the, the Philistines. Uh, David, his response to Saul's death was he, he was grieved when he heard the news. Uh, even though Saul had set himself up as David's enemy, or set David up as his enemy, I should say, and uh, had repeatedly tried to kill David. And even though David, well, he stood to gain, humanly speaking, by Saul's death, he would then become king. Despite that, David continued to regard Saul as the Lord's anointed. And so he honoured him in life, and he honoured him and mourned him in his death. But then chapter 2 begins. We see how David, this new king, begins his reign. Notice the first thing he did. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Notice what David did. He inquired of the Lord. He, he sought out and listened to God's word. Now, this has been the very point of Saul's failure. This is what Saul had failed to do. Years earlier, Samuel had told Saul that above all else, he must listen to the words of the Lord. And Saul had failed as king, ultimately because he failed to listen to the words of the Lord. David's reign began as a stark contrast to Saul's disobedience. Here he is in humble obedience to God, going up to Hebron. He went up, he ascended, not just physically from Ziklag to the higher altitude of Hebron, but metaphorically he ascended to his throne. And what we have here is a, is a foreshadow of God's ultimate king, Jesus, who many years later was highly exalted through a path of humble obedience. God's king did not grasp power out of selfish ambition. The path to kingship was obedience to God. Well, David took with him his two wives. You might read that and think, hang on, two wives, that sounds like one too many. Um, side note, polygamy is not, uh, is not forbidden in the Old Testament, but the problems with it are often talked about and often seen. Uh, God's established pattern for marriage in Gen the Genesis accounts was, was that one man and one woman would be united for life. And Jesus, uh, Jesus affirmed that, uh, that pattern set in Genesis. David's polygamy was, in the end, was at the centre of his downfall, which we'll see in the coming weeks and months, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So David, along with his two wives and the men who were with him and their families, went up to Hebron and they settled there and in the surrounding towns. It would have likely been a few thousand people. We read verse 4, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. David's king at last. But notice he's king over the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the, the southern, uh, southernmost tribe, uh, quite a large tribe of the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there's a map here on the screen that, that uh, shows Judah in the south and the rest of Israel in the north. David is anointed king over Judah. And it begs the question, well, what about the rest of Israel? Will they also anoint him as king over them? But before we get to that question, we'll see how this new king 
will treat his enemies. Look at the second half of verse 4. It says, When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you, show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now, uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, we read the account of, uh, of Saul's death, and we read how the men of Jabesh-Gilead had they'd risked their lives by invading Philistine territory in order to retrieve and honour Saul's body after the Philistines had uh, killed him and hung him and his, his sons up on a wall. Uh, Jabesh was the same town that years earlier Saul had dramatically saved from Nabesh the Ammonite. You can read it in 1 Samuel 11. So the men of Jabesh were, were clearly loyal to Saul, their king. They showed themselves to be his friends. And we might think, well, given Saul's enmity to David, well, that might turn David against them. But no, David honours them. David prays for God's blessing, God's love and kindness to be shown to them. And he says that he will show them the same kindness. So the new king shows kindness to those who would regard themselves as his enemy. Those who were his enemies. He speaks to them of God's love. And again, we hear echoes of King Jesus, who showed God's ultimate kindness and faithfulness to us who were his enemies. Well, David is now king over Judah. But what about the rest of Israel? In verse 8, we read of a rival kingdom being established, a new king and the new king of Judah was opposed. So verse 8, meanwhile, or some translations have but, unlike the men of Judah who've anointed David king, meanwhile Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Now, I don't want to lose you in a sea of strange names, which Sue uh, read beautifully well for us. Um, so let me, let me try to uh, unpack this for us. Enter stage right, Abner. Here he is. Abner was a cousin of Saul. So, he, so Abner's father, Ner, and Saul's father, Kish, they were brothers. Uh, Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Now, as such, Abner and David would have known one another well. In fact, they'd had various dealings with one another. Abner was there with Saul on the day that David killed Goliath, and uh, Abner was there with Saul on the, on the day that, on the night, I should say, that David had snuck into Saul's camp, and and uh, and then David you know, pointed out his failure to defend Saul. So Abner and David knew one another, and Abner was clearly affected by Saul's enmity towards David. So when Saul died. Abner didn't rush to change his allegiance and fall in behind David. No, instead, he installed one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, as a rival king. Now, clearly, Ishbosheth, next slide, there we are, he's king. There we are. Now, Ishbosheth obviously wasn't killed with Saul and, and his brothers, uh, and Abner used him and installed him as something of a puppet king in place of his father. 
installed him as king over all these areas that are listed there. Notice it finishes with over all Israel, which I think at this stage is describing the whole nation, including Judah. So Abner doesn't acknowledge David as king. He is opposing him. Now, it's interesting, the place that, that uh, Abner brings Ishbosheth to make him king, it's a place called Mahanaim. Uh, Mahanaim means two camps. Uh, it's somewhat symbolic as Abner is dividing Israel into two camps, those of Judah who acknowledge David as their king and those of the north of Judah who don't. I think it's a sobering reminder that there will always be those who oppose God's king. And in the chapters that follow, we, we see the workings out of this. We see the tensions and the rivalry between these two camps, these two sides. And it begins from verse 12 with this, this conflict between the two sides of the kingdom. A conflict between Abner's men and David's men. Now, as Sue was reading this, you might have been thinking, what on earth is going on here and what does this have to teach us? I think that was kind of the overriding um, theme at my growth group during the week as we read through this. Let's dig into this and, and see what this conflict is about. Now, there's three scenes to it, which you'll, you'll see on the outline. And I think it's important to notice, firstly, that neither David nor Ishbosheth were involved in this conflict. This was an attempt by their followers, led by their strong men, to resolve things by talk and by action. This was politics, and it failed. The politicians were not wise enough, they were not good enough, they were not strong enough to solve the problems facing them. The limitations of human politics were on display that day. Well, let's look at what happens. It begins with the two sides coming together of sorts. In Gibeon. Verse 12 Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and, and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So, enter stage left, Joab. Uh, now, Joab's mother, Zeruiah, was David's sister. We learn that from 1 Chronicles 2 16. Uh, Joab was kind of the equivalent of Abner. He was the commander of David's army. And so we have two rival parties coming together. But at least initially the scene is calm. Notice there verse 13 continues, one group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other. They're seated and they're around a pool. Perhaps this was a pre-planned meeting to, to pursue a diplomatic solution. Well, then Abner suggests some hand-to-hand -hand competition. Literally, he says, let the young men arise and compete before us. Now, the word compete there, it actually has the kind of sense of entertainment. You might know the story of Samson, you know, when Samson was captured by the Philistines and the Philistines said, bring out Samson to entertain us. It was the same word. Joab agrees to this competition. Maybe the intent was some sort of wrestling match or you know, maybe think of it as an ancient equivalent of state of origin. You've got north versus south. And so verse 15, so they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men, it would have been 13 if it was state of origin. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. 
Perhaps they, uh, yeah, perhaps they, they were intending things to be an entertainment, but perhaps like many state of origin matches, tensions were high and things soon exploded and got out of hand. The summary is provided in verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. I think like with a state of origin biff, where it only takes one player to raise a fist and suddenly 26 players are going at it, I think likewise it probably only took one person reaching for their concealed dagger before everyone lay dead with a dagger in their side. And so verse 16 finishes... So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which your footnote in the Bible will tell you means field of daggers. Abner and Joab's first attempt at a way forward was a disaster. Any hope of a peaceful resolution was destroyed and what we read is that a terrible battle then raged for the rest of the day. Verse 17 firstly summarises uh, it says, the battle that day was very fierce and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. Notice just there how it's worded that it's Abner against David. Abner's defiance against the kingship of David. That's the root cause of this conflict. We're given the summary and then we're given the, the detail. We're told of the three sons of Zeruiah. These three nephews of David, Joab, Abishai and Asahel. Now, these men were, they were loyal supporters of David. They, they were men of action. Uh, the middle brother, Abishai, there was the, he was the one who snuck into Saul's camp with David uh, earlier in 1 Samuel uh, one night and wanted to pin the sleeping Saul to the ground with his own spear. But this time, it's the younger son, Asahel, the fleet-footed Asahel, who takes action. Verse 18. Now, Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left, take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Asahel is single-mindedly focused on taking out the top dog, Abner. Never mind meetings of, or diplomacy now, the opportunity for that has passed Asahel will take matters into his own hands. But this is an unfair match, and Ab Abner knows it. Asahel may be fleet-footed, but he's no match for the experienced military commander, Abner. Abner tries to defer it, deter Asahel again in an effort to de-escalate things. Verse 22, again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look at your brother Joab in the face? Choose someone else who's a, a more equal match. But in the end, it's Asahel's own speed that's his downfall as he impales himself, I take it, on Abner's spear, which I suspect he probably thrust backwards as he ran away from, uh, from Asahel. And so there lay King David's nephew, the brother of David's commander, with Abner's spear through his body for all to see. The conflict then escalated to another level. Asahel's brothers Joab and Abishai uh, Shai, pursue Abner as he retreats. They're seeking revenge for their brother's death. They pursue him throughout the day. And verse 24 says, As the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammar near Giah on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. 
And so we've got two camps on two hills. Abner with the men of Benjamin on one hill, Joab and Abishai on the other. And Abner calls for a truce. Verse 26, Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Notice he points out their fellow Israelites, or literally brothers. Now, perhaps Joab was persuaded by Abner's speech for peace, or perhaps he just didn't like his chances um, now that the men of Benjamin had, had rallied behind Abner. But either way, Joab called off his men and they went their separate ways. The chapter then finishes with Asahel being buried. Notice verse 32, at Bethlehem, David's hometown. The place where years earlier David had been anointed by Samuel and told that one day he would become king. And perhaps this account finishes with this little detail about Bethlehem as a reminder of what was at the heart of this conflict, namely the ascension of God's chosen king. See, the thing that matters most is not understanding the plans and strategies of Abner and Joab. Uh, We might look on at this bloody day of battle and wonder who was right, who was wrong. The Bible writer seems quite content not to comment on that. What is clear is that the situation was rather hopeless. Their strategies didn't work. The best men of action from both sides actually only made things worse. They weren't wise enough. They weren't strong enough. They weren't good enough to solve things. What hope was left? Bethlehem. God's kingdom would come. But it wouldn't come through the the failed strategies of men like Abner and Joab in the days of David. God's kingdom would ultimately come about a thousand years later, again featuring, featuring Bethlehem, when a son of David was born there. Born to be the true king whom David could only faintly, dimly foreshadow. And through this king, Jesus, the son of David, God worked again in in strange ways through his humble obedience, even to the point of death. Through his resurrection from the dead, God won the victory over evil. And God continues to work in strange ways through the preaching of the foolish word of the cross. God is growing his kingdom as he calls people to turn their lives around and put their trust in him as king. And so I guess by way of implication for us, the wise response as we live in this world is not to strive, is not to strategize, to to manipulate things for our own cause, our own advancement. Because like Abner and Joab, we're not good enough, we're not wise enough, we're not strong enough to make any real progress that, that ultimately matters. Now the wise response is simply to pray, your kingdom come. It's to realise what matters most is that Jesus is God's king and he will work to bring in his kingdom. Our efforts often achieve far less than than what we hope for. Often what we do achieve is weak, is fragile. But praise God, he is the one who's bringing in his kingdom. And when he establishes his kingdom, well, that's when we can truly know the peace that we long for. 
So rather than looking to our own human strategies, our own plans, our own efforts, our own politics, instead, let's look to Bethlehem and let's pray authentically, your kingdom come. Let's do that now. Our Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we, we confess that so often we do strive and strategize and seek to bring about changes for ourselves, for our cause, for our advancement. Father, forgive us. And Father, thank you that you have installed your King, our Lord Jesus. Thank you that whilst we were your enemies, you have shown to us in Jesus kindness and faithfulness. Now, Father, help us not to look to ourselves, to our efforts, our strength, our wisdom, but to look to you, to look to Bethlehem, where you gave the perfect king. Now, Father, thank you that you are bringing your kingdom through your king, Jesus. We pray that more and more people would hear and respond to your call to turn their lives around and to put their trust in him. And we pray in humility and dependence on you. May your kingdom come. Amen.